Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 38 of the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinsky. Our guest started his career as a sports reporter for the Washington Post. From there, he came west to L.A., where he became a writer on the legendary comedy series Seinfeld. In 2009, wrote and produced uh, the online comedy series Peter Melman's Narrow World of Sports, which featured... Kobe Bryant, among others, and his new book is the very funny uh, hashtag me as well about our world that we live in of political correctness. Peter Melman is here. Peter, thanks. That was a fancy introduction. That was an incredibly succinct and good introduction. Yeah. Th- and, and one take. One, one take. Normally, I do that a couple of times to get it right. Usually... People start saying on Seinfeld he was a co-producer and a and a, a supervising producer and an executive. You know, like they don't understand that the titles mean nothing. Yes, yes. <laughs> so they just go through all of them. It's like that movie State in Maine. Remember that scene? Just give him a producer credit. We just give everybody a producer credit. <laughs> so, uh, so I read the book and I want to talk about the book. Uh, but uh, your op-ed in the L.A. Times totally grabbed us today we were just reading it um and the line that jumps out is being funny in la now is like trying to do a tight 15 minutes after the weinstein prosecution rests it it's cased there is an excellent chance someone will respond with oh you poor thing try living in aleppo (laughs) how tough is it to be funny in la right now it's not that it's so tough. It's that there's absolutely no way of predicting what the reaction will be. I don't really care. I mean, unless somebody shoots me and I don't think my humor is like exactly, you know, that offensive. But it is amazing the reaction you get to what you know is kind of funny, at least. You know, I mean, to tell you the truth, I from the article, I cribbed st- a few jokes that I use in stand-up. And I, so I know they were funny. And um, yet, you know, the article starts out with a true story where this woman is playing with my dog on the street and she says to me, oh my God, he's so cute. Did you adopt this dog? And I said, no, he's my biological dog. <laughs> <laughs> and she actually looks up at me and says, well, if you ever went to a kill shelter and saw how awful it is, maybe you wouldn't think you're so funny. I was like, oh, my God. People are just looking for a reason now. Everybody in America just is sitting home, scanning the globe to try to be offended. Everybody just wants to be offended. When did it start? I don't know. Is it the internet? Is it uh, Twitter? Is it uh, Instagram? Is it all that stuff? Perhaps. I start thinking that maybe it's always been there and we just didn't know about it. You know, the bad thing about the internet is that now we kind of know firsthand what at best we might have suspected all along. You know, we might have known that people were all so crazy, but we never really had to experience it firsthand. Now we just see it right in front of us 
every day. You know, you were saying that you're doing stand-up, and, you know, as a fellow, you know, comedian, I've, I really feel it in the clubs. It's so different than it was back in the day when I first started. You know, you could talk about anything, and you were never checked on it, or you never had somebody in the crowd, you know, call you on it and, and, and have, like, a little bit of an argument about it. it you, just, you just told jokes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I only started doing stand-up like three or four years ago. No, no, ago. no, I know it's that. Like, but, but, you know, I mean, I obviously spent a lot of time around comedians and everything like that. And um, it's just, I think even worse than them calling them out is that kind of weird, like if you tell one slightly politically incorrect joke, you get this weird nervous silence and you're like, <laughs> you know. Do you, have you had to like cut things out of what you do? Well, we talked about this not that long ago. I did a gig at a Jewish um, university and thinking that most of the people in the audience would be um, non-Trump supporters. And I, you know, I came out on stage and I said something like, you know, I, you know, sorry that my voice is a little hoarse. I've been screaming at my television for the past three years. And 90% of the people laughed. And one woman just gave me the stink eye and groaned and then tried to interrupt me when I was telling some of my jokes and we did a Q&A afterwards. And she, you know, really tried to take me to task and was saying, you know, you have to be really careful about what you're saying because you don't know who your audience is. And I said, well, you have to be really careful when you come to a comedy club because, hey, you take a risk as much as I do. You don't know what the comedian's going to say. And, you know, you can't, yeah. attack me for you know it's like and you know what i'm gonna get paid and you're not <laughs> exactly so but I, I i don't ever remember during my entire career being concerned about something like that or, or that it would even happen what's amazing is you get these deadly silences on jokes that don't exactly pertain to the people themselves you know, like I was doing this little joke about being at the Museum of Tolerance and, you know, like they had an exhibit about Islam and I realized that it's really a very beautiful religion and it's not fair to let 75 million bad apples spoil the whole bunch. <laughs> <laughs> I get silences in the audience and there's no, you know, there, there, there are no Islamic people in the audience. <laughs> and still they're people like... People are offended oh, for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the uh, the book, um, you, your character, uh, sports writer for the uh, Washington Post, experiences what, what we're calling cancel culture, uh, where and, and the joke is not even it doesn't even strike me as an especially strong joke. Just tell the joke. They're talking. He's a sports writer. His name is Arnie Pepper. And they're sitting around like a batting cage, a bunch of sports writers. And they're just making jokes about different things like sports writers do around the cage. And they start talking about this one NBA player who's a good player, but he's known to be very soft. You know, he doesn't like physical contact in the game. And Arnie Pepper... Um, says, you know, he hears that the guy was injured and is on the disabled list. And so Arnie Pepper says, um, 
how long is a guy usually on the disabled list for a hysterectomy? (laughs) (laughs) And it is kind of like a joke that walks the line a little bit, but it's really not that offensive. And um, somebody posts the joke yeah, on Instagram. Arnie doesn't even do it. Somebody else posted. Right. Another sports writer right. kind of breaks the sanctity of the, you know, of the press box, really, and posts the joke on Instagram, and it goes viral like crazy. And, um, you know, the whole book is basically what happens over the next 24 hours or well it's about really about 48 hours and what's going to happen to is he going to lose his job is you know what's the fallout with his daughter and his colleagues and all that right stuff? and there's death threats and there's actual people who actually die because of this joke yeah so um you know i, I it just kind of melds a whole bunch of preoccupations i have which are sports political correctness, the internet, the Me Too movement, you know, all these things kind of merge into the whole, into the book. Why did you start doing stand-up at this uh, precarious time? I happened to go to a charity event one day, and I was bored to death, and I ended up talking to one of, like, the servers there, and she's a stand-up, and she's, like, 24 at the time. And we're just talking. And she goes, you know, I do stand-up and I have this show. You should come do a set. I said, I've never done a set. She goes, so write something for five minutes. I said, okay. And because I always had this one opening line, like if I ever thought of doing stand-up, I had kind of like this one opening bit that I was going to do where I was going to just come out and say, I guess most of you know me as the guy who impregnated Roe from Roe v. Wade. (laughs) (laughs) So I had an opening joke. (laughs) It's all you need. Yeah. And then you're off and running. And I had the second joke too, which was... um, you know, I said to her, look, you're you're pregnant. You don't know. You don't want to have the baby. You don't have to make a federal case out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I had two jokes. <laughs> and from there, I don't know, you know, and I got up there and I you're not going to believe this, but I felt calmer on that stage than I do like ordering a coffee at Starbucks. I don't know. I just felt like this incredible calm. Like I was like taking pregnant pauses the first time I was up there. Now, in all your years of of comedy writing and being around comedians, did it ever occur to you to get on stage years ago? It never really was something that I thought of seriously doing. But at the same time, I was around so many comedians. And, you know, there was one year on Seinfeld where I was the only writer on the staff who was had not done stand up. Was that the like the first? Was it the first season with Bill Masters and Scrovan? That was and the Heyman? that was the second full season. Okay. Yes, but that was it um, with um, John Heyman, Bill Masters, Steve Scrovan, and you know Larry Charles had done stand up, and Larry David had done stand up, and Jerry had done a little stand up. A little bit. Yeah. How did you wind up uh, on? Because you were a sports writer, and you came to L.A. How did you wind up on Seinfeld? Um. You know, in the late 80s, you know, I had worked for Howard Cosell at ABC Sports in the in the mid 80s. And wow, what'd you do for Cosell? I worked on a show called Sports Beat, 
which was a um, sports journalism program, kind of like what Brian Gumbel does now, except only a half hour. It won several Emmy Awards. I'm sure it did. Of, of which I never collected any because what of made, my title. What made Cosell so... Well, I was actually talking on the on the radio yesterday about him. What made him, what made him so Cosell? I think it was a combination of a he did not have the look or the voice of your typical television personality, especially in the '60s and '70s. But the main thing was that he annoyed viewers because he was constantly alluding to the real world he would not let sports fans live in their little camelot you know of sports where the real world is not invading he was constantly reminding everybody how sports is part of the wider picture of american life and you know he was constantly pointing out you know the hypocrisies of of sports and you know, and he took on the fans, you know, he was telling people stuff that they didn't want to hear. And yet he was so famous, you know, every year he'd be voted amongst the top 10 most admired and most hated Americans oh, yeah. Yeah. every year. And, you know, he's what made Monday Night Football an event. So yesterday... CBS announced they're paying Tony Romo $17 million to do to stay at CBS and assuming that that was ESPN's offer because CBS had the right to match. Um, and we were, we were talking about, well, who... Talking about Cosell, and you're never going to find that again, but is there somebody completely out of the box that you could put on Monday Night Football maybe as part of a three-man booth that would, that would stir things that way? Uh, I, I really can't think of anybody right now. You know, it's funny, like they did that experiment with Dennis Miller for a while Mm -hmm. and, you know, it had a little impact on the culture just in terms of his references, but it somehow, I guess, didn't quite work. I don't think it really translated with the type of comedian he was, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, the fact that in the beginning of Monday Night Football now they show clips of like Cosell and Don Meredith and and John Madden, you know, it's kind of shameful because like what they're doing now, it's not Monday Night Football right. anymore. You know, it's just like The Tonight Show. After Johnny Carson, it wasn't The Tonight Show anymore. Yeah. And this is not Monday Night Football. You can't just have people sitting and talking jockocracy stuff you know up there you need somebody like the last one was john madden you know no matter how much he talked about football you got the idea that this guy was bigger than sports you know like he had a wisdom that was beyond sports i think tony romo actually does too and maybe that'll eventually come out because you know he's a he's a really engaging guy yeah i was always rooting for him to get traded so you know like i could root for him well, now he's making more money than he ever made as a quarterback. Right. He's making more money than half the quarterbacks in the NFL, which is crazy. Well, crazy. How much money is CBS making on football yeah, games? No, fair you point. Know, so, um, fair point. He's probably getting a lot closer to what he deserves yeah. than he did as a football player. So I headed you off there from Washington Post to Seinfeld. Yeah. I um, After Cosell, I was, I was laid off after the... 
a few months after the 84 Olympics, you know, we had a very small staff at Cosell and um, it was an unbelievable corporate waste spent playground, you know, and um, I got laid off in uh, December after the Olympics. And then I was just freelance magazine writing, nothing in sports. You know, I was writing for a lot of women's magazines, actually. And then I just, this, you know, I, I wanted like a little change of life and I really liked L.A. So I moved out here and I bumped into Larry David on the street. And I'd only met him like one or two times in New York, I think twice. And, you know, we kind of got along, but, you know, I didn't know him very well. And he he just said to me, you know, I'm doing this little TV show with Jerry Seinfeld. Maybe you could uh, give me a writing sample and I'll pass it on to Jerry. Who knows? <laughs> Everybody, when they talk about Larry. They go into. They do Larry. Yeah. <laughs> well, Cosell was like that. Too. Exactly. Sure, exactly. Sure. We used to do that with Howard. We'd talk about what a piece would be like, and we'd all be talking in his voice right in front of him. And it would be, you know, you still got some Cosell? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. You gonna do any? Um, <laughs> I could. Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you a quick story. You, you can't. You can't say you've got a Cosell and then not do the Cosell. Well, I, I, I just can't. Uh, I, you know, there are so many stories. I'm trying to. T- you know, I, I always kid Jerry Seinfeld that he's the second funniest boss I ever had because Cosell was so funny. Wow. And um, he tested your sense of humor all the time. So I'll never forget one day he had Harry Edwards in his office. Mm-hmm. Harry Edwards is like six foot eight black guy, bald. He organized the Black Power salute at the 1968 Olympics. He's a, a professor at um, Berkeley at the time, very imposing guy. And he's in the office with Howard and I walk in and drop something on Howard's desk and Howard says, Peter, I'm here with Professor Edwards. We're talking about coaches, black coaches in the National Football League. What's your feeling about black coaches in the National Football League? I know he wants me to say something funny, so I said, I said, I don't know. There are so many black players. They need to coach too. <laughs> and Howard just says, that's an excellent point, young man. <laughs> and Harry Edwards is looking at us like all of a sudden he's walked into a Klan rally. <laughs> and then Howard just starts cracking up. And I start laughing and Harry gets it and he starts laughing. And it was just like a great moment. I mean, Howard used to do stuff like that all the time. He, he once did an interview with, I believe it was Eddie, um, the guy who was on Baltimore Orioles. You know, Eddie Murray? Murray? Yeah, Eddie Murray. And um, at the end of the interview, he says to Eddie Murray, he goes, one more question, Eddie. Why is it that you hate the Jewish people? <laughs> and Eddie Murray, he was a very ornery guy. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like... He had this little horrified look on his face, and then Howard just goes, eh, 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 I'm done with you. <laughs> oh, then that's great insight. I had no idea. Oh, God, he was so funny. I never met anyone who enjoyed his fame more than Howard Cosell. Huh. I mean, he just ate it up. Yeah. It was great. So, anyway, um, as it, I bump into Larry David, he tells me that. 
that he's doing the show and I don't have a script as a writing sample. I give him a column I wrote for the New York Times, which was um, about a day after a breakup when I spent the entire day walking around New York City. Um, I was going to spot, I, I was, after a breakup, I wasn't too grounded in planning solo days. So, you know, I was walking around the city thinking, okay, I'm going to spot a celebrity and then I'm going to go home. <laughs> you know, because my friends and I were really good at celebrity spots in New York. And I ended up, you know, writing this article about how I spent the entire day, you know, walking around. And, you know, it was a lot of um, digressions about life and love in New York. And it was kind of funny, but, you know, Oddly, it was also a little bittersweet, which was not something that was very Seinfeldian. You know, we didn't really go for that. <laughs> but um, he passed the article on to Jerry, and Jerry said, bring him on. Wow. And I got to write one script, and I got really lucky. You know, kind of beginner's luck. And uh, What was the one script? It was called The Apartment. It was when Jerry kind of blurts out to Elaine that an, a woman in his building died and there's an open apartment mm -hmm. and then he immediately says oh my god you know like I'm gonna have my ex-girlfriend wandering around my building I'm gonna have to sneak around like a cat burglar <laughs> and you know I, that was the idea I gave them and um, they just said okay go off and write it it wasn't like any other show where they would like sit there with you and beat it out one i mean i gave an entire plot line in that story that wasn't even in the pitch i just had it while i was writing i was thinking it would be really funny if george wore a wedding ring to a new york marathon viewing party just to see whether women would hit on him more if he had the ring and like that wasn't even you know, they read that. They didn't even know that story was going to be part of it. You know, they just go off and write, which was, you know, good for me. Because, you know, like if I were on a show like Friends, where you have to sit and pitch jokes in a group, I, I would have never made it, you know. It's brutal. Sue's been there. Brutal. I mean, I, this didn't happen to me, but Michael Patrick King told me a story about being in a writer's room and the showrunner would go around the room and say, what's your pitch? All right. Like, like if he didn't respond in like a second... It was like, forget, forget it. What about you? Oh, you're such an idiot. And, and it was like so unconducive to any kind of creativity. And then, you know, like they get one line, you know, they, they, they have a table read like on a, on a Monday and on Wednesday night they're rewriting and, you know, till three in the morning and they get one joke in the script for the next morning and then the next day they walk around like they're a writer. You know, like, I'm Philip Roth. I had a line in the script last night. You know. So you were on in season one of Seinfeld? No. Um, well, season one was only four episodes. Right, right. And not a, didn't get ratings, right? No, no. And season two was 13 episodes. It was a mid-season replacement. That's when I had my first script in there. And, you know, after we shot that script, Larry says, well, you know, if we get uh, picked up, uh, you know, you you can be, you'll be on staff, and um, so the next season, which was the first season where we had twenty two, um, was my first season, and then I was there for six years. When did you know the se the uh, series hit? You know, 
I never had any doubt that it would somehow. Hmm. I, that's why I was so nervous when they gave me the the tapes of the first four episodes that they shot. You know, I was like, eh, do I want to go into TV? I don't know. I saw these and suddenly I was like, this is so great. I got nervous because I really wanted to do this. Like I really wanted to be on this show. And um, so I always kind of thought that there's no way that this isn't going to catch on. It's too good. Little did I know that, you know, good is a handicap in television. But, um, <laughs> you know, it became very clear once we moved in my second season there, once we moved to the um, time slot after Cheers, we went through the roof. And I'll never forget Larry being quoted in the paper as saying, well, if they weren't watching on Wednesday night, we don't want them on Thursday. <laughs> you know, and, they, and NBC is like apoplectic, you know, but they, can't, but they can't say anything. I think what a lot of people don't remember is that the first season, it wasn't even called Seinfeld. It was called the Seinfeld Chronicles. Yes. And then there was another show came on there with Chronicles, so they changed it. So what do you think of television now? Um, well, LG makes an incredibly good set. <laughs> oh, you mean the programs? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the comedy is bad. Comedy, it's not a great time for comedy in television from what I can see. I, you know, there are very few comedies and, and, you know, forget the network comedies. Oh, I mean, you know, the only time I ever forget the networks. Yeah. I mean, the only time, like, if you're watching a sports event on CBS or ABC or something like that, and you see promos for their sitcoms, you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> you, know, they, they, you know, NBC's slogan now should be, we give up. <laughs> but, you know. I think most shows are now NCIS. Yeah. I mean, pretty much. That's all I see promos for is NCIS. Or, yeah. or well, once they get on a, on a hook of something, because then there's all these firemen shows and hospital Chicago, shows. Chicago, Chicago, everything. Chicago, Chicago everything. everything. Yeah, Chicago They're going to have another show, Chicago Board of Ed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, they have every, you know, they have every municipal department in Chicago covered, you know. Chicago water. Chicago sanitation. DWP. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine? <laughs> what about the rest of it? All the streaming stuff and well, HBO you know, there's some great stuff here and there. Curb, you know? yeah. I mean, there's Curb. There's, you know, like, <laughs> and I noticed it stopped after Curb. Um, well, comedy-wise, yeah, but you know, there's a there's a lot of pretty good dramas out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, and um, even the ones that aren't that good are a lot more interesting than what you ever saw on network TV, you know? And, um, you know, I'm looking, you know, and there's a certain level of ambition that's really good. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I mean, in the last 15, 20 years, you know, Mad Men and... Um, Breaking Bad. And Breaking Bad, you know, and and The Wire, you know, these are epically fantastic shows, yeah. you know? I mean, I just started watching Mad Men again 
which I think is the best show ever made. It is so good. And I just can't believe how great it is. Yeah, it's so uh, so much about any one of those stands alone, too. Yeah. Any one of those Mad Men episodes stands alone. It's It doesn't have to be part of the larger arc. And they're just about mood and time. And it makes me think... Like my mom was Joni. She always worked in an office and she was always the person in the office who knew more than everybody else in the office did. And my dad smoked cigarettes and mm-hmm. uh, went out for three martini lunches. And it just, rem- it makes me think of that's that's the way my, my parents grew up. Yeah, I mean, it was so accurate to that time and yeah. stylistically as well. Uh, you know? That show is just an, a monster achievement. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think you know Breaking Bad was great, but I think it's The Wire and Mad Men are like the incredible achievements because The Wire is like Shakespeare. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, and so brilliant looking at the the drug situation from every different angle. Yeah, I mean, it was just amazing. Do you find it easy to write? Good question. Um, but that's what you're here for. Yes, that, um, that is my job. That is your job. Um, I find it easier to write a novel than I do to write like that essay that you were talking about in the LA Times. That those sometimes they come really easily, but most of the time it is just you know a slog. It is really I'm you know just trying to find the exact right story and then the wording and everything like that. And you know you have. A paid, you have a you know a word count in the back of your head, so all that is hard. Writing the novel, you know, I'm I'm kind of a lazy person, and so novel wise, I I discipline myself by saying, okay, you just have to make a little bit of progress every day, even if it's just one paragraph. And chances are, if you write one paragraph, you're going to write a few more. Yeah. And, you know, I just love the novel stuff because, you know, I don't exactly know where I'm going to go. I don't, and I just love cruising along. And then, you know, the part, the, the part of, you know, like writing something and realizing, oh, this is really good. I should go back 50 pages and set it up, you know, drop something in there. To, you know, I just love all that stuff. Arnie uh, Pepper, your character there, uh, stops and every time he thinks of something clever, he writes it down in a notepad. I'm guessing that, is that you? Do you do that? I've been doing that basically since 1978 when I got out of college. I was doing it at the Washington Post. Yeah. Um, You did a talk show um, and you had Kobe Bryant on the talk show. Tell me about that. Um. You know, I was doing this show called Peter Melman's Narrow World of Sports because it, I wanted it to be like counter-programming to ESPN. You know, like I, I'd see, you know, the questions that reporters ask on ESPN, no offense. Uh, um, <laughs> no, no, you know, none, just like, none taken? <laughs> I mean, I just like, I can't believe how pat the questions are, you know, and, uh, you know, like a guy hits a three run homer in the bottom of the ninth to win a game. And they asked the manager, how important was that homer at the end? (laughs) That's always the question too. how important, how big was that on a scale of what? Yeah, right. So I just wanted to ask the kind of questions I wanted to ask, you know, like 
what you know like i asked kobe if you score 50 and the team happens to lose why should you feel bad <laughs> yeah and he goes i don't and he just laughs he goes i don't <laughs> you know and i and i was saying like you know if if you get up after the game and just say no this wasn't a total team effort i won this one total pretty much on my own is the world going to explode <laughs> And, you know, like I, I got to interview a few other people that, you know, especially like most notably uh, Blake Griffin. And, you know, like I asked Blake Griffin, you know, your mother is white, your father is black. Were you ever worried that the white half of you would, you know, hurt your chances of having an NBA career? And, you know, Blake is a comedy savant. Yes, he is. Yeah. yeah. He's like a genius, you know, and he said, you know, and he says, oh. I, I used to cry my eyes out. <laughs> I used to cry myself to sleep. Why? Why do I have to be half white? Why can't I just be guaranteed to go into the NBA? It's uh, great. You know, and I just wanted to ask these questions that people wouldn't ask. And, you know, so, you know, I knew John Black, who was then the PR person for the Lakers. And, um, and the funny thing is, if they, if the athletes know that they're, it's going to be a comedic interview, they're more interested in doing it because, it, especially for a guy like Kobe, who just is up for whatever challenge, mental or physical, there is. Yeah, you know. So I got Kobe, and it went great. And you know, once it got around that I got Kobe, I could pretty much get anyone. Yeah. So, you know, I got Danica Patrick, which was great, and um, so it was really a really fun show to do. And so refreshing uh, for for the athletes too, because they, yeah. they do get asked the same mundane questions. Yeah, I, I got Tiger Woods too, you wow. know, and I was, you know, asked yeah, it. I've never, I've never interviewed Tiger Woods. It, you know, this was really funny. He was doing the press for the two thousand seven or eight um, installment of the EA Sports game, you know, the golf game, and they only allowed him they he only would do three interviews at this event and he did one with somebody from golf magazine and one from god knows where and me and wow. there, there were actually articles about about tiger not talking to people and you know and but i got one of the three interviews and like the first question i asked him was like you know, in a in a major tournament as opposed to just like a normal stop on the tour, do you have a different strategy for taking your back nine mulligan? <laughs> and he was like, No, no, I you know, I kind of wait for the exact right moment. I try to preserve it, you know. <laughs> and then I was saying like you know, like when you hit it off somebody in the gallery <laughs> to aim for the head or like he goes, well, if it's a dog leg, definitely aim for the head. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, oh. these guys love this. And the funny thing is, from this kind of question, you learn more about the guy than you do yep. from serious questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I um, mean, Danica Patrick was a was just a, a blast. Yeah. Um, so you did a series called It's Like You Know. Yes. How long did that run? Two seasons. Two seasons. Do you aspire to do another tv series i don't aspire to it but you know i wouldn't rule it out you know if if the right thing came along you know or if somebody or if something i already wrote you know i wrote a few pilots that i absolutely loved you know and who knows what can happen now you know where things crop up but um you know i would certainly consider it 
How important is it for you to have more creative control? Because I know with Larry, no one told Larry what to do. I know when right. Louis C.K. was doing his second show, he flat out said to the network, you give me notes, I walk. This is my show, mm-hmm. and I don't need the show. I can support myself for the rest of my life without this show. How important? Little did he know. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, exactly. No, 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 I'm just, I'm just kidding. Down, yeah. But yeah. I actually so admired the way Louis, you know, he he basically said, "You give me a certain amount of money, and in exchange, you get you de- you get no input." Exactly. I mean, I was like, "Wow, that is fantastic." I actually liked the show a lot more than his stand-up. Yes, I yeah. really liked the show a lot. So, so circle so, back to square one. So, what happens to Louis C.K. now, given uh, the the issues uh, he has had with the with the Me Too movement? What what happens to him? Well, that was another big focus in the book, which is called Hashtag Me as well. Yes. And, um, you know, one of the things I was kind of amazed about and, you know, just always fascinated by is the day-to-day life of these guys who have been caught up in the movement. You know, can Matt Lauer go out to lunch with his daughter? You know, can can Louis C.K. just walk over to the corner store, you know, and, um, you know, Charlie Rose, you know, does he even go to the dentist anymore? I mean, does he, <laughs> does, does he even like, you know, is it too embarrassed? You know, it's, it's like, he goes, you know what? I, the hygienist, you know, the, I, I'm getting, she's not going to, what's she going to do to me? <laughs> He's got to go to Mexico. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, so you start thinking like, what a daily life is like. Well, and and that's a big thing in my book well, is like, you know, the the tiny thoughts that are going through somebody who's caught in the middle of this whirlwind. And I think, I don't know how Louis C.K., I mean, his stuff is, you know, the stuff he's accused of is, um, you know, it's it, it, it's pretty bad. Yeah, it is. It well, is. Well, there, there, there definitely is a certain forgiveness because he's touring again. I mean, he's he's performing. I know, uh, but, you know, I wonder how much of it is, you know, the fact that he's, you know, a very successful comedian or just the curiosity factor of seeing this guy, which, you know, either way... They're God, supporting him. Either way, they're supporting him, you know, and fine. But... Um, your character Arnie Pepper survives his incident. Um, does is the world just done with somebody like that? Is the world done with Matt Lauer? Is the world done with Charlie Rose? Is it done with Louis C.K.? You know, maybe we're still, you know, before that verdict. Maybe you know we're still pre-verdict coming in on that. But you know, it certainly seems like it's the end for Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer has made some internet you know some implications of wanting to come back and it's not happened right and i think he lives in like new zealand or something like that <laughs> he did i think he did move to new zealand <laughs> and um so you know everybody always says well you know the pendulum will swing back i don't see the pendulum swinging back mm. i think people are um loving their own ability to be offended too much to ever let it swing back. And, you know, I mean, some of the things that people have been fired for 
is really horrifying. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, like, I mean, this is not going to sound great, but I was even disgusted, like, reading about how there were all these protests at the Caesar Awards in France because Roman, over Roman Polanski, over yeah. Roman Polanski for something that, you know, not only happened 45 years ago, but, you know, he was kind of screwed over by the justice system here. Yes, he was. If you read the details, and I just finished a a big book called The Big Goodbye uh, by Sam Wasson, and they go through the details of that case, the judge really did screw up that case. And there's no question, we were actually just talking Mm -hmm. about 13-year-old girl, all that stuff. Um, But the judge did screw up the the way the, the punishment was handled. Yeah, and the girl has already, you know, has said a million times, oh, you know, just let, let him it go. go. And, and you know, all the stuff with Woody Allen, you know, like nothing new came out about Woody Allen, but just because there was a Me Too movement, all of a sudden they brought it back. He was right. a target. You know, and it's just, and the misinformation, everybody's so misinformed because they don't want to be informed. They want to believe what they want to believe. So, you know, they're all saying, he married his wife's daughter. No, he married his girlfriend's daughter. He never even lived with Mia Farrow. And Mia's, you know, borderline crazy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I mean. I yeah, it's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the misinformation. People don't bother to yeah. get the facts. It's the misinformation age. Yeah. Well, it's just recently, too, with Elizabeth Warren and Michael Bloomberg, you know, when she accused him of telling a wor- uh, one of the women that worked there that because she was pregnant. Yeah. And allegedly, I, I haven't heard that, that there was even proof that he even said that. I mean, I, I don't know. Well, it's in, I think it's in a deposition. It is in a deposition? Yeah, it's okay. in a deposition. Because she, like, attack-dogged him, like, to no end. Yeah, yeah. He told her to get an abortion. Is that what she's alleging? In, in, in essence, that's what he said. Like well, she couldn't work there anymore because she was pregnant. Yeah, and told her to, to get kill rid- it. Kill it. Yeah. Oh, that's pretty bad. Yeah, that's really rough. Well, I mean, you know, not as bad as his debate performance <laughs> overall. <laughs> on on that note, uh, <laughs> the book is called Hashtag me as well uh and peter thanks a lot for coming over and doing this oh this was my pleasure and thanks a lot for listening to the culture pop podcast we'll see you next week accident or injury call jacob and ronnie call jacob hey it's mace if you or a loved one is injured in any kind of accident please don't wait call jacob immediately for a free consultation that's right free when an accident happens it can turn your world upside down so put the best on your side jacob doesn't even get paid unless you win first name first thought first call jacob 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 after an accident 24 hours a day call 844-24-JACOB or visit calljacob.com call jacob Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next week for an all-new episode of Culture Pop.